This Week at Hope Point. The story of redemption unfolds to a greater degree, making the dimly lit room of the Old Testament even brighter as Jesus sits down around a campfire in the dark of night with Nicodemus, who is the great teacher of the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus tells him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. A reference to the cross being raised and put in the ground. Whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Jesus tells us now, he tells you now, look up and live. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as our teacher speaks to us from God's holy word. Still have a little PTSD here as I'm walking over to the podium. Um, Well, this morning's story is a familiar story. Sometimes the danger of familiarity is that it can rob us of wonder. So my prayer and encouragement this morning is that we approach God's word, that we would approach it with a childlike faith, that we would come like a child to recapture the the wonder of Jesus that is in this text this morning. So to kind of set it up for us, grabbing the baton from last week as Caleb took us also in Luke, but the single greatest event in in human history has just taken place. The greatest words ever spoken by an angelic being had just been spoken. A dazzling angel of the Lord stood before an empty tomb and he proclaimed these words to a few astonished but very frightful women. He said this, why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He's risen. We can say that, right? Not just on Easter. These words were like an earthquake. It just rumbled throughout Jerusalem, sent shockwaves. Christ is risen. It had actually happened. So like a wildfire, I mean, joy is spreading and joy is unspeakable, but not for everybody. That same day, just hours after the resurrection, walking along a lonely, dusty road towards Jerusalem, from Jerusalem towards a small village called Emmaus, were two friends. They were walking back home. They were dejected. They were confused. They were depressed. Their heads more than likely were hung low. Their hearts were shattered. Now, these two guys were faithful followers of the Messiah, who just three days before, they had witnessed being nailed to a tree. And he was now dead. And their hopes were also dead. They had put everything into the idea that the Messiah would rule and reign. He was Dead. They were walking along in deep conversation, possibly deep argumentation about all the things that had just taken place. What, what, what in the world just happened? What did we miss? What did we not grasp? And then the remarkable happens. 
all of a sudden, out of the blue, they are joined on this road by a stranger. Pick up with me now, Luke 24, verse 15, as I juggle four things in my hands. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Who said the Bible's boring? (laughs) But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They had no clue that this was Jesus. His post-resurrection body was not dazzling. It was not glowing like that of the angel. You'll remember back in John's gospel that when Mary saw the resurrected Christ for the first time, she thought he was just a common gardener out in the garden. Nothing about him in appearance or form was dazzling. Prophesied by Isaiah. Verse 17, Jesus speaks for the first time. He says to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? Just like the master teacher that Jesus is, he's asking his pupils a probing question to draw these guys in to himself. Now they stood stock still looking sad and probably very dazed. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only one, the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened in these days? I mean, in other words, he's saying, dude, have you been living in a cave? What? I mean, seriously, have you not been watching the news? It's everywhere. Everybody knows this. How have you not heard these things? I love verse 19. Jesus said, what things? I mean, he's just reeling these guys in. Then Cleopas goes on, probably thinking, who are you? Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was, remember he's dead, He was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Ah, now we see the reason that their heads are low. These two friends thought that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem the nation of Israel. They thought he would be the mighty conquering king who would crush Roman rule, reestablish the messianic reign. In other words, they saw the glory of an earthly kingdom, but failed to see the groanings of a suffering Messiah, who the Old Testament, which all they had at this time, prophesied that he would suffer. Cleopas goes on, and he's just digging himself deeper in a hole. Yeah, yeah, and besides all this, there's more. It is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. I mean, they're not believing any of this. They said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. 
Now listen to what Jesus says to them in response. Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Listen to this. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer such things and enter into his glory? These guys are standing stock still. They've just been rebuked by the stranger. Who are you? Still don't know. But in his kindness, the stranger, Jesus, is going to do something amazing. Verse 27, look what he does. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wow, what does this mean? Now, look at what just happened. Jesus could have easily disclosed right then and there who he was. Hey, guys, surprise. Hello, it's me. He could have instantly revealed their sorrow. But he was after something deeper. Even for us today, he's after something deeper than just fixing our emotions. He wanted them to truly understand who he really was. So instead of a quick pat on the back or a nice platitude, look at his his remedy. He takes them deeper and deeper and deeper into the scriptures. Come and see, he's reeling them in. Come and see who I truly am. Wow. So from Moses, all the prophets, that's first five books of the Bible, all the prophets, Joshua to Malachi, Jesus begins to tell them how all the Old Testament scriptures pointed to him. Now, if I had the chance to go back anywhere in the Bible, just one opportunity to parachute in somewhere and just be a firsthand spectator, just a fly in the wall, I think I would go to this story. I mean, can you imagine it? Walking next to Jesus as he shares where he shows up in the Old Testament. I mean, you talk about the greatest small group Bible study ever, and I love my small group. But I mean, you have Jesus talking about Jesus in the small group. This This is the living word explaining the written word doesn't get any better than this. Sign me up. What number do I text to join? Now, keep in mind, as he's speaking, they still have no idea that this is him. Verse 28. Now, they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. I just love it. But they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Uh, for it's towards evening and the day is far spent. In other words, I mean, this is like a movie. They just don't want to end. Please don't leave. Just one more story. I mean, don't, don't go. So what does he do? He goes in and he stays with them. Now, it gets even more interesting. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Now, in this culture... It was always the host's job to 
initiate the meal by breaking the bread. It was, it was good manners. It was never the guest job to do that. But again, these guys are just spellbound. They, their jaws are on the floor. They're forgetting their manners. But so kindly, the kindness of Christ, you can imagine breaking the bread and as he hands it to them, uh-oh, it hits. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Jesus! And before they could, then he vanished. What? Wow. Now, it's interesting. The first thing they say that's recorded here isn't, he just ghosted us through a wall. This is what they say to each other, which is the deeper application. Verse 32, they said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us? When he talked to us on the road, while he opened up the scriptures, this is all they thought about. They weren't so concerned about how we just went through a wall. They were, they were so overwhelmed by what they just heard. Did our hearts not burn? Now, in just a few verses following this encounter, Jesus would reveal himself to the other 11 disciples and he tells them basically the same thing. Verse 44, this is what I told you while I was with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scripture. Now, it wasn't only after the resurrection that Jesus spoke in this way. Days before his crucifixion, he confronted the Pharisees. These were the supposed Bible experts of the day who knew the Old Testament in and out. He stood toe to toe with these men who would eventually be his captors, he told them that I'm the center of the great story. Listen to the staggering claims he makes in John's gospel. Now remember the audience, he's speaking to the Pharisees. You study the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but you're missing it. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. I'm right here. In them, you have eternal life. If you believe Moses, oh my goodness, you would believe me, Moses wrote about me. <laughs> wow. Christ in all the scriptures. From the lips of Jesus himself, it is crystal clear. He is saying, all the scripture points to me. From one bookend to the other, from Genesis to Revelation, it's one big finger and it points right here. That's what Jesus is telling them and he's telling us today. I love how Stephen Lawson puts it. He says it this way, the Old Testament says he's coming. The gospel says he's here. The book of Acts proclaim him. The epistles explain him. And Revelation says he's coming again. <laughs> That's the Bible in a nutshell. I heard one old preacher say, the Bible is just one big hymn book. It's just all about him, the Lord Jesus. So just like Cleopas and his friend 
Church family, we must ask ourselves today, this very moment, do our hearts burn within us when we read the scriptures? It's my prayer for myself as well. Now, later in Luke's narrative, these guys were so filled with joy, burning, it was so overwhelming that after they had spent time with Jesus, maybe he was, okay, guys, not, okay. They fled out of there in the pitch black dark back towards Jerusalem because they had to share with everybody this knowledge they now possessed. Jesus had to suffer. The resurrection is grounded in the Old Testament. Do, do you guys not see the, the, the Bible is being fulfilled? I mean, that's what they're telling all their friends. The, the wildfire now is just burning even hotter. So friends, when the truth of scripture becomes clear, when you see Christ for who he truly is, the heart is set ablaze. I think I've shared this before, but in the first small group that we were part of, newlyweds, me and my wife, trying to figure out marriage. <laughs> we spent two years in the book of Romans and in the book of Romans, my wife saw for the first time the gospel for what it truly is. Scripture, just the old story. Her view of Christ had completely changed. So you think of Richard, okay, we've been in Revelation for a year. Why? Why does he take us line by line, verse by verse, each and every week to bring illumination? To bring illumination, to bring clarity, to make the scriptures clear, to make Christ known, which leads to burning hearts. But here's the problem. For the heart to burn, the mind must be fully engaged to approach and interpret the Bible correctly. The reality is when we come to the Bible, we, we bring with it some baggage. We've all been shaped by various things, pop culture, social media, everybody has a platform of what to say about the Bible, entertainment, maybe for some they've fallen into false teaching well-meaning Sunday school teachers with bad theology, all of these things have shaped, honestly, the way that we approach the scripture. For some, the Bible is an anthology of good advice. Something to chew on, but it, it never leads to heart change. For others, the Bible is like a pretzel. It can be twisted to however you want it, to say what you want it to say and mean what you want it to mean. For some, they view the Bible like a cheesy Christian film. It's full of bad actors and in the end, everyone wins. Kirk Cameron's always the star. No, I'm just kidding. For some, the Bible is viewed as an ancient artifact that, that, that is behind glass in a, in a museum. Man, it, it is great to look at from a distance, but oh, do, do, oh don't get too close could change you. For some, the Bible is a dusty rule book that belongs in a hotel drawer. For others, and sadly, this is quite popular, the Bible is a well-meaning series of Sunday school stories on morality. 
It's how to be better. So the story of David and Goliath sounds more like the Hebrew version of Jack the giant killer. Now, if you're gonna defeat the giants in your life, you just gotta be more brave. It's all up to you. Just be more courageous. Just be stronger. You know what? Just be like David. And a seminary professor said, calls those the deadly bees. Just be better. Where does that get us? <laughs> for, for yet others, the Bible is like a Mount Everest. It, it's an impossibility, an intimidating mountain of knowledge. So the Bible reading plan from January has run aground again in the wastelands of Leviticus. Again, you have to bail out. Trust me, I've been there. <laughs> And it just becomes weary. Still more popular, and maybe this is more accurate for you today. The Bible, you would say, is all true. It's all inspired. I believe every word, but it seems to be a scattered and confusing collection of stories. Uh, There seems to be just a disconnect from the Old Testament and the New Testament. See, the, the... it's hard to see the big picture. There doesn't seem to be a connection or continuity between one book of the Bible to the next. Now, perhaps this morning, if you have fallen into one of these categories, I wanna say there's actually great news for you. (laughs) The Bible is not a museum of ethical principles. The Bible is not just full of moral platitudes or abstract life lessons. It's not just a jumbled collection of stories. Church family, the, the Bible is far more grand. <laughs> the, the story is way more spectacular. From, from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation, the Bible, and see this, is a single unified, unfolding, thrilling story of God's grace towards rebel sinners that culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. This is the Bible. I've been listening to a lot of Christian hip-hop this week. My favorite Christian rapper, Shy Lin, puts it this way, all roads in the Bible lead to Golgotha. Now, Here's where we've got to be careful. <laughs> As we traverse the roads in the Old Testament, our goal as students of the word is not to make Jesus magically appear in every verse, okay? That is not what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. As Brian Chapel puts it, Jesus is not in every mud puddle or camel print in the Old Testament. Every Bible verse in the Old Testament doesn't mention Jesus specifically nor should it be twisted to mention him in ways that it is not supposed to. However, this is what it does mean. Every passage of scripture in the Old Testament stands in some relation in its broader context to the person and work of Christ. Now, what does this mean? If you think about the Old Testament as a whole, And maybe for some of you, this is kind of the avoided side of your Bible, right? I get that. But through its promises, 
through its patterns, through its predictions, through its symbols, its types, its shadows, its pictures of salvation, they pave the way like a snowplow. Sorry, I'm from North Dakota. It's just where my mind went. Paves the way like a snowplow directly to the person and work of Christ. That's one way to think about the Old Testament. Now you might be asking, why is it so important for us today in this cultural moment to read through the Bible with a Christocentric lens? In other words, reading the Bible through just a Christ-centered approach. Why is this so important? Well, this story helps us and gives us a clue to that. Just like Cleopas and his friend, by seeing Christ more properly and more clearly in the story of redemption that's unfolding, we actually will worship and adore him more and more and more and more. You see that journey on the road? That class was actually called Worship 101. (laughs) That's what it's about. Now, contrary to what many so-called Christian self-help books say, that sometimes you find in the bargain bin at Goodwill, the Bible is not about us. The Bible is not me-centered. In fact, the focus is way higher and the hero is far better, amen? (laughs) If you just consider the unity alone of the Bible, how it's tied together beautifully, it's actually very mind-blowing. 66 books of various genres written over the course of 1,500 plus years by over 40 different authors of different occupations, from a shepherd in Amos to a Pharisee in Paul. It included 10 civilizations. It spans three continents and was penned in three different languages. Yet, there is one unified story of redemption. This is remarkable. The Bible has one ultimate plan. There's one ultimate plot. There's one ultimate champion, one ultimate king, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. To paraphrase the theologian B.B. Warfield, I love how he frames this. The Old Testament is like a room full of treasures, but dimly lit. Imagine that. It is filled with prophets that predict him, patterns that preview him, and promises that anticipate him. So here's what I want to do in my remaining time together. Using Luke 24, 27 as our foundation, I want to open the blinds of this dimly lit room. I want to let some light into this room to expose the treasures of Christ as we will see in the Old Testament. Now, the amount of time from Jerusalem to Emmaus was seven miles. As Jesus was walking with them, you think seven miles, the average person had to look this up, walks a mile in average 17 minutes or so. So for around 119 minutes, Jesus is giving this message to them. Now, I don't have 119 minutes to to share all these things, but I want to hit some of the mountain peaks. You ready? 
beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, as they walked along this road, perhaps, just perhaps, Jesus began where it all began, pointing to himself in the book of Genesis. We know the story well. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, God told the serpent who tempted them, he told them these words in Genesis 3.15, which is a mountain of a verse for us today. God said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Bible scholars refer to this as the proto-evangelium or the first mention of the gospel. And it is here upon the mountain of Genesis 3.15 where the great story of redemption begins to unfold and begins to come. This is the stage that is set as we look down the course of redemptive history God pronounces in this verse his first promise to redeem his people, that's us, who are deeply marred and stained by Adam's sin, that is us. He would send one who would be born of a woman and who would defeat Satan once and for all, but he himself would suffer greatly. Remember, this is what they missed. The son of man must suffer greatly. Jesus was the snake crusher in Genesis 3. Let's go now to Genesis chapter 6. Things are getting worse, and actually they're getting way worse. In Genesis 6, we see the story of Noah. Now, I must confess as a dad of four, as we attempt to try to read the Bible to our kids, <laughs> this is probably the most sanest sanitized story in all the Bible as we teach it to children, right? The cute floating zoo, the jolly bald man atop, the, atop this boat with the giraffe sticking out, the cotton candy clouds and the rainbow. I mean, we've all seen it. But this story is actually horrific because here's what we don't say. Every man, every woman and child were destroyed because of their wickedness. And God is not a trigger-happy God. Oh, I'm just gonna... It took Noah 120 years to build the ark. God is a patient God. So he would send a water judgment to destroy the earth, but he would make provision. We have a God today, family, who is a God of provision. He told Noah to go build an ark that would provide refuge from the coming storm. And it was coming. This story points to Jesus, the true and better ark, who is the only shelter for us today from the storm of God's wrath. He is the only refuge where there is salvation. So just as Noah obeyed God, by getting into a wooden boat to save a few people. Jesus, in absolute obedience to his father, 
didn't get into a wooden boat, but he got upon a wooden cross to save many. The ark pointed to Jesus. Fast forward to the story of Abraham. God asked him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we know the story well. They walked up the hill together. Abraham laid his son upon the altar. As the knife was coming down to slay his son, it was held back. God provided a substitute. Off in the thicket, what was, what was there? A ram caught in its horns. Now we, we look at this as, you know, just, man, what a, what a beautiful story. But on this side of redemptive history, as we can look back, Abraham didn't get that privilege. On this side, we said, no, that's not, that's not a great story. That's only the intermission. Hundreds of years later, God would provide another substitute who would walk up another hill. This hill was called the place of the skull. But this time the substitute was his own son. And this time he didn't hold back. He allowed his son to die so that by his blood, many would be ransomed. Do you know that the ram pointed to Jesus? Is your heart burning this morning? We might need some Toms because we're gonna keep going just a little bit longer. <laughs> that was a bad dad joke, I'm sorry. Um, in the blockbuster book of Exodus, this is the one where all the movies are made. Charlton Heston, you know, the great, God uses Moses to redeem his people from slavery in Egypt. This again points to Jesus who through his death would rescue us not from slavery in Egypt, but from slavery of sin. Also in Exodus, the people are wandering, they're, they're grumbling, they're complaining, they're impatient. God is a God of provision. He sends them what? He sends them manna in the wilderness. This too points to Christ. Jesus is the true and better manna. He proclaimed to the crowds, I am the bread of life. Come to me and be filled. Do you dare go with me to the book of Leviticus? <laughs> Jesus is actually there too. Now we know, we've got stuck there, ran, ran aground. All the boring requirements of holiness. These all point to the holiness of Christ. Every burnt offering, every grain offering, every peace offering, every sin offering, Jesus perfectly fulfilled each and every one. Check out the book of Hebrews. Okay, grab your water bottle, put it in your backpack. We're going into the scorching desert. In the book of Numbers, one of my favorite books, God's people are still in the wilderness. They still have not got their act together. They're still impatient. They're still grumbling and they're still rebelling. Sounds kind of like us. <laughs> it was so wicked what was happening that God sent venomous snakes to strike the people for their sin. They cry out in repentance, save us. 
Moses, make a way for us to be saved. God hears their cry. He tells Moses, make a fiery serpent, set it upon a pole, lift it up before the people, and whoever looks upon it will be saved. That's a weird story. Where is Christ in this story? We've already seen in Genesis 3.15, God would send one who would come as a snake crusher. 41 books later in the Bible, same chapter, same verse, in John 3.15, the story of redemption unfolds to a greater degree, making the dimly lit room of the Old Testament even brighter as Jesus sits down around a campfire in the dark of night with Nicodemus, who is the great teacher of the Old Testament. And this is what Jesus tells him. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up. A reference to the cross being raised and put in the ground. Whoever believes in me may have eternal life. Jesus tells us now, he tells you now, look up and live. The bronze serpent in the wilderness points and foreshadows Christ. Is it burning? In Deuteronomy, God's people are nearing the promised land. This too anticipates Christ who is securing for us a true and greater promised land called a new heaven and a new earth. Richard will come back and preach this in Revelation 21 and 22. He is coming. Now, I've only covered the first five books of the Bible and we're still in the desert. This isn't good, but I'm running out of time. Just a few more. Let's go now into the dungeon of the book of Judges. Perhaps the gloomiest book in all the Bible. Things start out not even okay and they just cycle down and down and down and down and worse. God sends judges and even the judges themselves get more despicable. Jesus proved to be the true and better Samson. Remember Samson? He succeeded where Samson failed. You'll remember Samson killed a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Every single enemy he tried to kill. Yet Jesus, dying naked and shamed upon a wooden beam, could have slayed a thousand of his enemies with a single breath. Yet his love for his torturers. As he looked down with bloody, stained eyes, as he cried out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiveness for us today. Jesus is his greater David, who came up against a bigger giant. 
Jesus faced down the only giants that can truly kill us, the giants of sin and death. Jesus went into battle headlong, not just to risk his life, but to give his life. So just as the little shepherd boy with the sling and the rocks slew the, the, the mighty Philistine giant, that victory was credited to, to Israel's account. The people's victory was because of that, because of David's act. But because of Christ's victory over sin and death, that is credited to us. We were zero in 2000. Now we're 2000 and zero. That's the point score. We didn't even have to pick up a stone by the river. Jesus did it for us. His victory is our victory. Not only that, but Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but left a heavenly palace giving his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Job whose pain and relief pointed to the sufferings and pain and the glory of Christ. And then in the book of Hosea, the people of Israel are committing all sorts of heinous acts of spiritual adultery. But God tells the prophet Hosea to go marry an unfaithful prostitute. What in the world? It was reflective of the relationship of what the people had done. But this too points to the faithfulness of Christ. Who right now, he is preparing a faithful bride for himself called the church. You remember the guy who ran from Nineveh, Jonah? Jesus is a true and better Jonah. Who's thrown into the storm so that we could be brought in Christ in all the scriptures. So from Adam to Abraham, Genesis to Malachi, the scripture church family is all about worship. Worship 101. It starts here. As we see all of the ways that God has provided for us through the life, death, and resurrection of his son. Jesus was everything Adam failed to be. Jesus was everything Israel failed to be. Jesus was everything every priest, prophet, king, and judge failed to be. And I have news for us, and it's glorious news. Jesus is everything that we have failed to be. <laughs> and that's good news. He has succeeded where we have failed. For some of you this morning, you just need to hear these words. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? My friends, this morning, just in closing, some of you, you have entered into this room weary and tired. You're ready to throw in the towel. Come to the feet of Jesus. He provides the greater Sabbath rest. He's the true peace. And in him, you'll find better rest. Some of you this morning, you are so weighed down by sin. Guilt, crippling shame. Flee to Jesus. 
who when John the Baptist saw him from afar, he said, behold, the Lamb of God, he takes away the sins of the world. Take your sins today to the Lamb, the true and better Passover Lamb. And then last, if your soul this morning is just dry, it's parched, drink from Jesus today. He was the rock in the book of Exodus. When Moses struck it and water gushed forth, bringing life to the people, Jesus proclaimed to the crowds and to us today, I'm the living water. He provides living water for the thirstiest of souls. If you're in need of prayer today, if you just need someone to just pray over you, maybe you don't even have words. Maybe you just need a hand, someone to speak Christ into you today. We have a prayer team. It'll be right down here on the right side after I'm finished. Christ in all of scriptures. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.